Well, my friends, Shaw Jerry Adams, August the Silver Gum, Will Shivsha, Gumai. An Amsher Gohuntag is Majin Gal Bra Grainwer and you. Just to say, I hope you're all doing well on this lovely, bright, sunny morning. And I've been a wee bit apologetic about once again in these podcasts dealing with the issue of the current state of unionism. But that's where the game is at this point. So I suppose it's it's true to say that the narrative which has been generated particularly from the DUP leadership seeks to present the, the current political mess as a fault of everyone except themselves. And mostly they blame the Irish protocol element of the Brexit withdrawal treaty, the Irish government, the European Union, and the funeral of Bobby Story 10 months ago. The fact that the protocol was negotiated by the Johnson government, encouraged by the DUP, is simply ignored. The fact that the protocol is a child of Brexit and that Brexit is a child of the DUP is also ignored. They also claim, as Arlene Foster did last week, that Republicans are waging a cultural war on Unionists, while at the same time the DUP stall and stall again on their commitment to introduce Act Nagelga. According to Peter Cardwell, a uh, former advisor to two British Secretaries of State and a self-professed Unionist, according to Peter, Unionists are confused, bewildered and frustrated. And writing last week, he admitted that the key tenant of Unionism, in its essence, is its inflexibility. What is Unionism without the Union, he asks. Now, next month, Unionists will celebrate 100 years of the Northern State. Nationalists and Republicans will not be joining them. Why? Well, the 100 years is nothing really to be celebrating. The Government of Ireland Act 1920, which established two socially conservative states on the island of Ireland, was the culmination of 40 years of home rule agitation and three home rule bills by Liberal governments, and all failed to deliver even the minimum self-government to Ireland that was promised. The Conservative Party of the time successfully exploited the issue in its efforts to replace the Liberal government by using what Lord Randolph Churchill described as the orange card. The Tories engaged in a calculated campaign to inflame passions and undermine British parliamentary democracy by supporting an insurrection against the government, a coup in fact. A provisional government was established in the north and in the political negotiations around partition that followed the British spoke out of both sides of their mouths in dealing with the Unionists and the Nationalists, promising each what they wanted to hear. So here we are 100 years later, and the Unionist leadership is again playing the orange card, whipping up fear and uncertainty, encouraging sectarianism and violence, 
making emotive and untruthful claims, all with the intent of intimidating everyone around them into conceding to their demand that nothing can ever change, even though the changes are ongoing. In other words, they demand that the constitutional status of the North must continue in perpetuity, because, as our friend Mr. Cardwell said, the key tenant of unionism is in its inflexibility. They insist that the commitment to the unity referendum and the Good Friday Agreement be set aside because they find it objectionable. Now, none of this is acceptable. Partition was an undemocratic act, an illegal, illegitimate, a moral act by a British government in support of a national minority in Ireland. The rejection of the Good Friday Agreement because a minority of citizens in the North do not like the possible outcome of the unity referendum is equally unacceptable. This is not 1886 or 1912 or 1690 or 1920. There's a different spirit abroad. The New Ireland is not the Catholic state of over 100 years ago. It will be a modern democracy in which the rights of all citizens will be respected and protected, including those who identify as British. No amount of huffing and puffing by Unionist leaders can stop this dynamic. The debate on Irish unity continues to gather momentum. Several weeks ago, Uchtaron, Hinfein, Mary Lou MacDonald and Tanishta Leavaradkar held a widely welcomed and respectful discussion on Irish unity. On the Late Late Show on Friday night, last Uchtaron and First Minister, Joint First Minister Michelle O'Neill had a, a rational and reasonable and sensible discussion with Ram Turbide about the need to start planning now. Being a boy TD, Jim O'Callaghan spelt out his vision of a New Ireland in an outline debate with Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge University, and Neil Richmond, the Fine Gael TD, presented a paper towards a New Ireland to an audience from the same college. And while Richmond accepted, or at least said, that there was no good time to discuss the shape of a new United Ireland, he did acknowledge that it needs to be planned for. It makes sense. We all plan. We wouldn't get anywhere unless we planned and made arrangements accordingly in our own lives, in business, in work, and whatever we do. But Cardwell's analysis of the health of unionism deserves attention. His recognition that the comments on the Clare Burns show recently of former Ireland international rugby player Andrew Trimble around a fused British, Irish and Northern Ireland identity, he sees this as the true threat to the Union. And that's a reflection of the old Unionist war cries of no surrender and not an inch. But in Andrew Trimble's remarks about the shifts in identity are the seeds of progress and of a reconciliation between the people of this island in the year ahead, or the years ahead. And I want to turn to the issue of solidarity with the Palestinians. 
And you know, none of us will be free while the Palestinians are on free. It was 12 years ago this month that I visited Palestine and Israel as part of a Sinn Féin delegation that included Ted Howell, Harry Thompson and Richard McCauley. And for four days we met with NGOs, Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations, women's organizations, community groups, university heads, senior United Nations representatives, trauma counselors, and Palestinian and Israeli elected representatives. We also spent two days in Gaza. At that time, Senator George Mitchell had recently been appointed U.S. envoy to the region and Tony Blair was acting as a Middle East representative of the Quartet, the European Union, the USA, Russia and the United Nations. Our visit to Gaza took place three months after the end of a three-week invasion and assault on the area by Israeli forces in which 1,400 people were killed, including more than 400 children and over 100 women, and over 5,000 people were injured, including almost 2,000 children. So we, a small Irish delegation, saw for ourselves the extent of the devastation. Schools destroyed, hospitals damaged, homes and businesses flattened. According to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, the Israeli attack caused extensive international displacement of the civilian population with more than 50,000 people seeking refuge in 50 UNRWA schools. All of this added to the hardship that the Israeli blockade and the siege of Gaza was inflicting on the almost 2 million people who lived there. The siege of Gaza has been maintained by the Israeli government since then. 12 years. In the intervening years, Palestinian people in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip and on the West Bank have deteriorated even further. Their lives are like those of prisoners in a big open-air prison. The Israeli government continues to build illegal settlements on Palestinian land, to steal water rights, to demolish homes, to evict Palestinian families, to destroy education and community facilities built by the European Union funding and farming equipment. And last year, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, the Israeli authorities destroyed more, than, more Palestinian homes than at any time since 2016. So Saturday a week ago was Palestinian Prisoners' Day. And that's an important date in the Palestinian calendar. Since the Israeli occupation in 1967, it's estimated that one million Palestinians have been arrested. This means that every family has experienced the trauma of a family member or members being arrested, often brutalized and detained in horrendous conditions. At this time, there are four and a half thousand Palestinians in Israeli prisons. According to the most recent statistics, this includes 41 women, 140 children below the age of 18. Approximately 550 political prisoners have significant health care issues, with at least 10 suffering from cancer. Some Palestinian prisoners have been in captivity for 40 years. This August, nationalists and Republicans in Ireland will mark 50 years from the introduction of internment 
that was a disastrous, unjust British policy demanded by the old Stormont regime, which exacerbated the divisions in Northern society and led to a dramatic increase in the conflict. Israel, at least the Israeli government, took the British colonial practice that has been used by them in Palestine and give it a new gloss. They call it administrative detention. Palestinians can be detained without charge or trial for indefinite periods and their detention is based on secret evidence. Some have been held for 15 years under this system. Palestinian children are tried before a quasi-military court. Some are imprisoned while others are held under house arrest with their parents forced to pay fines if the child is found outside the house. The decades of ill-treatment of the Palestinian people is a scandal. The international community should be ashamed. The Irish government is now a member of the UN Security Council. It lobbied during the vote for this prestigious position that it would be an advocate for human rights. And yet it still refuses to recognise, the Irish government refuses to recognise the state of Palestine as agreed in a motion passed by the Oireachtas. It prevents the passing into law of the Occupied Territories Bill that will block goods originating in Israeli settlements on Palestinian land being imported into the Irish state. So it's long past the time that the government in Dublin used its unique position within the UN Security Council to encourage the peace process in the Middle East by standing up for and defending the democratic and human rights of the Palestinian people. For now, I want to extend my solidarity to all Palestinian political prisoners and to wish the people of Palestine well as they prepare for elections to the Palestinian Parliament in May and the presidential elections on 31st of July. These elections offer the people of Palestine a significant opportunity to build new alliances, to develop new strategies and to reach out to the international community for support as they seek to achieve Palestinian statehood on the borders of 1967 with East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. So, my friends, just to finish up, and with a wee bit of good news for me anyway, I'm pleased to say that I sent the final draft of my new book to O'Brien Press this week. The galley proofs will come back mid-May for last chance editorial scrutiny. Publication is in August and I'm grateful to Bela and Bubble for agreeing to host the book or the book launch in virtual or reality format depending on COVID regulations at that time. My original book title was The Witness Tree, but I've opted now for Black Mountain and other stories. There are 11 new stories and five which were previously published. The new book title came from the publisher. One of the stories is called Black Mountain. And I'm very happy with the notion of the Black Mountain or Sleeve Do as the overarching witness to many of the events I've written about in this new publication. So Black Mountain it is. Watch this space for further details. Save the date for publication of Black Mountain and other stories during Fela 
in August. Gormila Mila Mila, my Ogob Gunyar. Slan Lipsha. It was dark, the battle ended, the moon shone down, O'Connell Street, I stood alone, where brave men perished, they Fighting for his country bold, he fought for Ireland and for Ireland only. The harp and shamrock, green, white, and gold. The first I met. Was a gray-haired father searching for his only son? I said, old man, should there's no use searching, your only son to heaven has gone. Fighting for his country bold, he fought for Ireland and for Ireland only. The harp and shamrock, green, white, and gold. My God, he cried. My God, he cried, going on his knees. I knew my son was too kind-hearted. I knew my son would never Fighting for his country bold, he fought for Ireland and for Ireland only. The harp and shamrock, green, white, and